Hello, hello. This is Jack Farley, host of the Forward Guides podcast on the BlockWorks Podcast Network. Soon we will be joined by Alfonso Pecatiello, uh, author at the, the Macro Compass. And he also has a podcast, the Macro Trading for, Floor, uh, on BlockWorks. We will be having a conversation at the BlockWorks Digital Asset Summit on September 13th and 14th uh, called the Macro Crystal Ball. Uh, we'll also, I'll be interviewing Alf. I'll be interviewing Daniel DiMartino Booth. I'll be interviewing Mike Green as well as Urian Timmer. Uh, so this conversation is sort of meant just as a primer for he and uh, me and Alf to catch up, see what he's thinking about in markets. I, you know, I, I think the narrative from the very beginning of the year until, let's say, I don't know, June 15th was pretty easy to just describe in terms of inflation rising, uh, inflation expectations rising, uh, although those abated earlier, and and basically uh, you know, federal funds uh, hiking, a, a hiking of monetary conditions all across the yield curve, but particularly on the short end of the yield curve. And that sort of fomented a, a sell-off in risk assets, uh, in credit, so, you know, s- spreads rose, but mainly it was that, that risk-free component. Um, so the Federal Reserve really, in, in, you know, in my view, I guess, um, was at the forefront uh, of, of the sell-off. And of course, since June 15, we've had uh, a pretty stunning reversal. Um, perhaps stunning is too dramatic of a word, but I was just looking at you know the Nasdaq ETF the QQQ is up something like eighteen percent since June fifteenth. Um, so I wanted to ask Alf, um, uh, uh, you know, why is that the case? Why does he think the market has been rallying, and you know, what's he seeing going forward? It's great to have you. Uh, yeah. So I was just saying the market's rallied in, in an epic fashion since mid June. What else are the? What do you attribute that that rally to? And later on, we'll get into you know. Do you think it's sustainable? But you know, if you had to list you know two or three main reasons uh, for that rally, what what would you say? Uh, so there were probably two uh, leading. I would say the first one was that investors interpreted the July FOMC Powell statement as a higher likelihood that the Fed isn't gonna keep blindly hiking. That was the interpretation. And as this happens, Jack, um, you effectively, the first thing you do as a macro investor is to reprise down real yields. Because if the Federal Reserve isn't going to keep being tight for long, then real interest rates across the curve do not need to be priced as restrictive. Restrictive means, well, mildly positive interest rates in the US. Now, when you reprise down real interest rates because you Basically, the Fed is apparently telling you that there will not be that very long-lasting restriction that they were predicating before. At least this was the market interpretation. This leads to several things being mispriced. Uh, obviously, the first one being um, equity valuations. If you if you believe that real yields are going to be lower and assume the same level of risk premium in the economy or in markets then you will have equity valuations repricing too. You will have gold repricing too. You will have you know, anything that is very much real yields related and valuations intensive being related asset reprice. So it was basically a repricing of the probability distribution of Fed outcomes going forward, not leading, leaning towards the super hawkish side anymore, but a much more nuanced Powell. And if Powell is nuanced, effectively it means that he looks at you know inflation data and as long as you see some economic deterioration as well it's going to be more leaning towards um, softening his stance 
then you can also price in a lower probability that is going to be rigidly hiking going forward. This impacts real yields, impacts valuations, et cetera, et cetera. The second part of the rally, though, was a bit different. The second part of the rally was a big gamma squeeze slash volatility targeting funds and risk parity funds and asset managers in general, which were pretty much under allocated to risk. So that is a bit of a more technical uh, part, but it's not very difficult to understand. Most of these funds out there uh, that are targeting volatility use volatility as an input for their allocation and their leverage. And given that volatility had increased materially across assets, even in places where it was slipping for years, FX and rates, for example, as it had increased so much and correlations also didn't work anymore, so bonds and stocks went down at the same time, for instance, in H1, they effectively were forced to deleverage their exposure. Because if volatility as an input is going up, then as, as a gross nominal exposure, you can have less, obviously, because your, your volatility otherwise will be too big compared to what your model tells you it should be. And on top of it, if correlations break down, this really doesn't help. So you had a lot of these funds that effectively had to degross or deleverage. And now the side effect of Powell telling us that he is not going to, he didn't tell us that, uh, we can discuss about that in the future, but in, in, uh, in, uh, you know, later in the call, but the market interpretation that the Federal Reserve isn't going to be so rigid in hiking anymore also led to some implied volatilities being crushed across the board. Effects volatility, rates volatility came down pretty aggressively. And together with, the, with valuation expansion, that effectively led to some ability from these both targeted funds to re-leverage and to buy. And interestingly, you had the place where people were under-allocated the most actually rally the most too. So you had cyclicals at some point started leading uh, with the Russell overperforming the Nasdaq or the S&P. And you had emerging markets rallying and you had meme stocks rallying and you had high beta stuff rallying and home builders rallying 30% from the lows, et cetera, et cetera. So that was the second leg of the, um, of the equity repricing or the risk asset rally. Thanks for that, Alf. So, so yeah, two stages. The first, real yields falling. The second, volatility falling. And as a result, folks are able to take more risk. Um, you mentioned vol targeting. I, I you know, I, uh, you know, a lot of books about two thousand eight about how as uh, assets fell and volatility rose banks had to sell more in order to keep the amount of money that they would essentially lose in a day at the same rate. So if, if, you're tar- if you're telling your investors, if you, know, Alf, if you and I have a fund and we're telling investors that we're the, within a 95% confidence in- interval, you know, we're, the maximum we can lose is 2%. And uh, you know, we're, we're able to, we're able, and, and the VIX is at 40, if the VIX falls to 20, uh, or the assets that we own, the vault, the uh, you know, volatility falls. We're able to take on a lot more risk because we're able to still still fall in 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 that mandate. Okay, so the second one makes a little bit of sense to me, and you know, you definitely can see that in the the sort of the dogs of the stock market. Let's call them, you know, the Carvana, the Netflixes, like the the worst. You know, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Like the assets that have really led the way down. Uh, for the first half of this year have been leading the way up. Um, you know, we've seen AMC, GME, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond uh, go back. But Alf, let, let's talk about the real yields because you're, you, you're very familiar with the, uh, the plumbing of 
the, the fixed income space. So real yields are inflation adjusted, but they're not not really inflation adjusted by actual inflation, but by forward inflation. So uh, something that in the U.S. it's a uh, you know Treasury inflation projected security is, is typically I think what the reference rate is, and then the the sort of inflation that's projected is is called the inflation break even rate. Why were real yields falling? Was it the nominal uh, rates falling, which are you know in the short end really a, it's all about the Fed, and you know you know you know I love to talk about the Fed, Alf. Um, but then also. Uh, why, to, to, to some degree, why were short? So, is it, was it was it a double whammy? Short-term real rates, uh, sorry, nominal rates falling because the the Fed is going to pivot and we're all going to be happy. And then also, inflation break-evens were falling at the exact same time. Is that it? Actually, what happened there is that nominal yields um, started falling, especially at the front end, reflecting a Federal Reserve which isn't going to validate market pricing. This was the original interpretation from markets and then on top of it you had inflation expectation that actually rose because think about it jack if the federal reserve isn't going to be really that committed to slow down inflation that what the market is going to be uh, doing there is to push inflation expectations slightly higher because the very organization the very central bank supposed to bring and to anchor inflation expectation down is actually easing down their stance or supposedly easing down their stance a little bit so there was a double whammy, yes, where real yields at the front end went down because nominal yields went down and inflation expectation went up. Now, this was the first part of the rally, uh, or explained the first part of the rally in real yields that then basically spurred a uh, rally in valuations and valuations in intensive assets or uh, risk sentiment intensive assets. For instance, crypto as well was in that basket at the very beginning of the rally. What I found most interesting was that after that, Fed speakers came to the wires. And you had all of them, uh, one after another, reminding us from Kashkari over the weekend, all the way to Evans uh, during the week, telling us that, hey, guys, sorry, but we didn't really mean that. We, we are not going to step uh, with our foot off the gas pedal until we actually see some pretty solid uh, results when it comes to fighting inflation. We want to see inflation all the way down to 2%, convincingly so. So, you know, don't get too much uh, overexcited. We try to maybe give you an inch and you took an entire mile. So as you, as you started hearing that, what happened is that the front end of the bond market had to reprice up because obviously the Federal Reserve has quite an influence on front end euro dollar contracts, front end like two year treasury yields, because they influence that directly by a monetary policy. If you're buying a, uh, you know, one year ahead euro dollar contract, you're basically looking at the next LIBOR fixings over the next year, and that is highly influenced by the path of Fed funds rate over the next year. Of course, there is some basis and LIBOR OIS uh, risk, but let's not, not talk about that. Big picture, the Fed can influence the front end a lot. So what they did there is they were able effectively to push back two-year yields to 3.20%, which is not far away from the highs that we have had at about 3.4% when the terminal rate was priced at 4% a couple of months ago. Now, what this has done is that it has, you know, effectively pushed the real rates back to a little bit higher levels. But nevertheless, the equity rally continued and it was led by cyclicals. So the second leg of the rally is what I found the most interesting, because from a macro perspective, if you want to leave aside the bold targeting funds, if you have real interest rates going up and you have the cyclical part of the spectrum leading the rally as well, that generally means that economic growth is getting repriced higher than expectations. 
it means that despite real yields being higher and still being in slightly restrictive territory in the US, you know, forward real yields are roughly 20, 25 basis points in the US. Even if those are above neutral, estimates of neutral, and they are going up, you have the cyclical part of the stock market and the FX markets actually leading the rally. What that means from a macro perspective is that growth is being repriced higher. Or alternatively, there is no macro explanation for this, but there is a, a bunch of macro insensitive price, uh, macro, let's say, insensitive buyers out there that are re-leveraging their books. They're getting squeezed on shorts and they are re-leveraging their book up by buying exactly the same things that went down the most recently. And I think the explanation has to be the latter rather than the former because all forward-looking and coincident indicators of economic growth are not painting a very nice picture. Just today, we had the Empire State Building Nice shit. The Empire State Manufacturing, the Empire State Building, hear me. Uh, the Empire uh, Manufacturing, the New York Fed, basically manufacturing survey coming out. And if you look at the subcomponents of this survey, which I found very interesting, effectively they depict a picture of forward leading indicators, for instance, new orders or new orders to inventory. If you look at the subcomponents, uh, they are looking really bad. They're looking as bad as 2008 doesn't mean necessarily it's going to be as bad as 2008 in growth, but at least it tells you the magnitude of forward-looking economic indicators weakness. It's pretty big. On top of it, it's telling you that the employment side is also weakening. Both hours worked and um, the amount of employees effectively went down. And don't forget the survey that asks about 200 CEOs in the state of New York, what are you know, the prevailing conditions for business in that area? So it, it should be relatively significant as a survey. And it's telling you that the employment side as well is weakening. So the more coincident part of the, of the market, you know, also seems to be, from an economic standpoint, not doing very well. It wouldn't really back the idea that we are going to be seeing not only a soft landing, but also perhaps slightly higher economic growth as apparently it should be the macro explanation of the latest uh, uh, rally, leg of the rally in the equity markets. So I don't see a, at this point, to be honest, uh, the macro picture and the data I use do not validate the second leg of the rally. I can easily, well, easily, I can try to explain and rationalize from a macro perspective, the first leg of the rally, the second one led by cyclicals, EMFX, and all of that honestly makes less sense. It seems to be more a, a macro insensitive uh, buyer activity that generally tends to be a, a good opportunity once exhausted. That's a difficult part to estimate. Once exhausted, it tends to be a good opportunity to scale back into trades that are fitting the macro picture better. Thanks for that, Alf. And when you say cyclicals, those are assets that are exposed to the economic cycle. So they do really well when the economy is growing, like let's say 2021. Uh, and they do really poorly when the economy is rapidly contracting, like let's say 2008. So, you know, uh, what would those be? Because you know, I, I follow oil pretty closely, but you know, what has been going on in, oh, I don't know, pick, pick your cyclical, like uh, whether it's copper uh, or you know, non-commodity cyclicals, uh, as well as in the emerging market FX space, what's going on there? Because I know we are all king dollar and you know, the DXY reached, what, 108, 109, uh, but it's, it's recently backed off there. Um, yeah, so just give us a little bit more color into the, the cyclicals that you're talking about, the specifics, and then also uh, the emerging market uh, currencies. So, so uh, Jack, what I do is I have a multi-asset class um, dashboard that basically looks at 
every single asset class out there and also volatility uh, surfaces across asset classes, queues, etc. And it looks at volatility adjusted moves. So what I did is I looked at the last month or six weeks um, and I looked at what were the, the biggest movers in volatility adjusted terms across asset classes, across geographies. And you know what stood up on my dashboard? The biggest uh, uh, winners over the last five or six weeks were credit spreads in Europe. So when I talk about cyclicals, we're talking about a relatively high beta open economy like Europe, and you're talking about credit spreads, especially high yield credit spreads. So you are definitely talking about a you know, risk sentiment, but also economic growth sensitive side of the equation. So credit spreads in Europe rallied big times in volatility adjusted basis. I think over the last month, I have it in front of me, it should be like more than three standard deviation move tighter. It's pretty big. Then you have the Australian dollar, which also did very well. Uh, today it's taking a beating, but it's, it, it did pretty well over the last month. Then you have the Russell. The Russell 2000 uh, actually led the rally and also moved 15% up over the last month, which seems to be, according to my dashboard, almost three standard deviation. Then industrials did very well. The, trans the S&P transportation ETF did very well. The S&P high beta ETF did very well. The Brazilian real did very well. So those are all uh, discussing, for instance, the subsectors of the S&P I mentioned, industrial, transportation, and high beta. Yeah, we are talking about all stuff that needs and breathes uh, higher economic activity to generate higher flows. Those are not companies that have uh, large uh, growth plans for the future where you can discount uh, future cash flow 20 years down the road with, uh, with uh, you know, decent probability and higher uh, higher growth rate, much higher growth rate, and and you know, and network effects. Those are real economy um, cyclical industries, industrial and transportations. And high beta also includes a bunch of uh, more volatile stocks, let's say, than normal. Also, relatively dependent on cyclical activity. All of those were the biggest winner on a risk-adjusted move over the last four six weeks. So what this tells me is that definitely there was. Um, a leading side in the second part of the rally, which was again uh, something that, on a, if you have to justify it from a macro perspective, it has to be that economic growth has to be repriced higher. Because if real yields are also higher at the same time, and nevertheless this stuff is rallying, it means that economic growth is priced to be higher. And honestly, everything I'm seeing on the screen right now screams basically the opposite. On top of it, it seems to be for the first time in a while that not only real economic growth is trending down, but also now that nominal growth might be trending down. That is a material difference as well when you go and look at asset classes, especially at bonds. Thanks, Alf. Really interesting about the widening of European credit spreads. Uh, why do you think credit spreads in Europe have, have widened and yeah, what is going on across the pond? You know, uh, perhaps you know, some of the folks on this call may follow, you know, uh, United States economic data pretty closely, but you know, I, for one, uh, am pretty far behind the curve when it comes to European data. So, uh, how slow, you know, how, how, how bad is it out there? You know, I, I know that the energy pricing is, is quite bad, but, um, yeah, what, what's going on there? Anything that stands out in terms of the European, uh, data? Well, let's say that the, the forward-looking economic indicators in Europe that I track have been looking pretty bad already since uh, February or March. Uh, that was mostly a function of real uh, incomes getting squeezed faster and earlier than in the US. So 
because in the US the inflation story was much more in percentage terms, a demand, an aggregate demand push story, it also translated into a uh, pretty weak, a pretty tight uh, labor market. And also effectively because of the structure of the labor market being much more rigid in Europe than it is in the US, in the US this tends to translate into higher wage growth. And so as, as you know, nominal wage growth was still uh, good below inflation. So real wage growth in the US was negative, but in Europe it was much more negative because of rigidities in the labor market and because the inflation composition was much more energy and food driven than aggregate demand driven. And again, this is to be expected given the size of the fiscal stimulus in Europe compared to GDP was completely different than the size of the fiscal stimulus in the US. Uh, obviously, when you have that happening, you have also, uh, and together with the energy squeeze in Europe, which affected much more the European continent than the US, forward-looking indicators were looking pretty bad already early on. And now, when you think of credit spreads and highly leveraged companies, um, I'm talking about, for instance, stuff that is sitting in the high-yield uh, CDS in, um, in, in, uh, in Europe. When you look at the com- constituents of this, of this index, you have... Well, you have a bunch of energy companies, and generally those you know, were relatively well supported because they could enjoy a decent pickup in free cash flows. But you also find a lot of leveraged companies with high levered business models that actually did okay over the last five to seven years because an all-in borrowing rate for a high-yield company in Europe was roughly 3%. I will repeat it. So if you're a junk company in Europe between 2016 and 2020, you could borrow on average for five years at roughly three to three and a half percent. This is extremely low as a nominal borrowing rate for a junk company. And this was basically the result of risk-free rates being extremely low and also priced to be extremely low for five to 10 years in Europe throughout 2016, 2020. And on top of it, ongoing quantitative easing that effectively made sure that people tried to extend down the risk curve and bought credit spreads as much as they could. So you had a combination of very low risk-free real rates and low credit spreads on top. Now, these companies were able to effectively carry on with the levered business model despite pretty tight margins, mostly because of that. But the situation dramatically changed when the economy was already showing signs of weaknesses early on in Europe for the reasons I explained. And with a bit of delay, but later on, the European Central Bank also had to turn hawkish pretty quick, Jack. And so you had this spike up, impressive spike up in, in high yields in Europe then now you are seeing reversing. So high yields have tightened, European high yield spread have tightened by 140 basis points in a month. It's pretty aggressive as a tightening move. It's three standard deviation in a month. Uh, and you are seeing these effectively as a releveraging trade. If somebody would show up to me and would say, Alf, um, I think these highly leveraged business models uh, while economic growth you know, keeps deteriorating when it's very likely to deteriorate going further and the energy situation hasn't materially improved since February, actually slightly worse than one might argue in Europe, uh, I think those, uh, those credit spreads should be macro-wise tighter. It can be justified from macro that these spreads are tighter. I actually have a hard time buying into businesses. Uh, this is basically, I think, the outcome of releveraging and carrying. And carry is, is a great component into this trade because obviously if you can buy credit spreads at 600 basis points and nothing happens in the meantime, you keep making money until something happens. So being short this credit spread is very expensive. 
and the market took the opportunity uh, to basically relever on uh, on this. This is the poster child for uh, cyclicals leading the second part of the rally that has very little to do, I think, with macro and a lot to do with implied volatility coming down, carry being back in play. But I don't think the macro environment underlying supports this narrative for too much long, uh, Jack. Yes, and just listening to you now, Alf, I, I can't help but think about the mismatch in some areas between the cost of capital and the return on capital. For, for example, I just saw in the Financial Times this morning that real estate developers, uh, you know, building office parks, they have to obviously borrow a lot of money. It's it's a it's a debt business, and the, their costs uh, are now higher than. The, the 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 money that they're getting from rent, which and that that is the first time that that has happened from uh, since two thousand and seven. So you can't you can't you know your borrowing costs uh, month in monthly terms, I guess, could double. Obviously, depending on the loan and the structure, but you, you can't double rent. I mean, I know we've seen some pretty uh, um, you know uh, uh, extreme rent increases in the U.S. and probably around the world as well, but you can't you can't double uh, rent. Likewise, you know if a uh, if, if, if you're selling a product that has inputs like copper and gasoline, your input costs can go up 60%, but it's pretty hard to you know, double your prices. Um, so yeah, what, what do you think, you know, how do you think it, it goes from here, Alf? Cause you, you wrote a recent story um, on your, your macro compass newsletter called fading the soft landing narrative. Uh, why do you think the soft, well, you, you've gone through reasons about why you think the soft landing is, is so unlikely, but which sort of assets do you think uh, will be most vulnerable in the, in the period going forward? So if I look at um, what my, my macro framework is telling me, Jack, we are probably heading towards a further economic slowdown when it comes to real economic growth, uh, probably worse than what's priced in by consensus or at least according to my models. And then on top of it, you're perhaps looking at a, an inflation slowdown as well. This would basically turn into a nominal growth slowdown on a rate of change basis. Now, the other component here is uh, monetary policy. And so if you have a nominal growth slowdown, and on top of it, you would have central banks accommodating this environment by you know, basically reducing Fed funds rate or ECB rate and making sure that uh, conditions remain accommodative, this generally would be a pretty supportive environment for risk assets. But this is not the case. The case today is that central banks are looking at the most lagging indicator of all, which is inflation that, you know, arguably is going to come down. Uh, we, we, have, we have had the, fir the, first, uh, the very first signals in the last CPI report. But it is all about the pace of slowdown. And we don't have any material evidence yet that the pace of the slowdown is going to be very aggressive. And central banks are going to be extremely reluctant, I think, to, to take the, the foot of the gas pedal until there is very, very actual progress. And I don't buy as well the fact that if inflation slows to a trend that looks like 3.5%, they're going to be happy with it. Guys, the, even the central bank's target is 2% for a reason, because it anchors inflation expectation long term around the very same level, which is far away from deflation, which is terrible in a credit-based system. It just doesn't work. But it's also far away from a level where inflation expectation could, could get anchored to 3.5%, if you are, If you signal you're happy with the trend of inflation that is 3 to 3.5%, you are definitely sending the wrong signal. And I don't think that neither the Fed nor the ECB, after this inflation scare, are in the position to send that signal. So what I'm trying to say is that 
the Federal Reserve and the ECB stance won't become very dovish very soon because of the structure of their mandate and because they're looking at the most likely indicator of all. And I'm also referring to uh, liquidity here, which is a very, uh, well, undercover topic where you are looking effectively at a combination going forward of both ECB and Federal Reserve balance sheet shrinking. ECB very much uh, under, uh, overlooked as a topic, but it is going to be shrinking as the result of uh, TLTRO repayments from banks. And in, in the US, it's a much more covered topic, but the, the, the QT that, is, that will be going on right now doesn't have an immediate uh, soft uh, path ahead. The reason for it is that the balance sheet of the central bank right now can shrink on the uh, on the asset side is very easy to understand. They won't reinvest maturing MBSs or treasuries up until a certain uh, cap per month. That's very easy to understand. So the balance sheet on the asset side goes down. What happens on the liability side of the balance sheet? What happens is that to shrink that, right now the Federal Reserve has basically three ways. One requires the government to actually require the government to collaborate very aggressively. And those are uh, the TGA, the Treasury General account size, and the reverse repo. And the other one is basically uh, the residual, but also, I would argue, the most important of the three items, which is bank reserves. Now, the, the TGA and the reserve repo facility effectively, especially on the reverse repo, they could have an easy way to sterilize the quantitative tightening going forward by collaborating with the government, issuing a bunch of bills, a huge amount of bills, so that this money, which is parked at the reverse repo facility from money market funds, could effectively be uh, reallocated into, into bills, because they can't reallocate those into treasuries due to mandate restrictions. Now, if you would issue more bills at a decent price, actually, because bills are trading today through Fed funds, right? So they're not attractive at all, indicating a scarcity of, of bill availability. If you would issue more, so this is Janet, Janet Yellen's job, you would be able to actually uh, shrink the balance sheet by uh, sucking away RRP rather than bank reserves. You could do the same in an opposite situation with the TGA, the Treasury General account, but both the RRP and the TGA actually require the US government to collaborate. If they don't actively collaborate with quite a big strategy effort, I would say, and I'm not seeing any signs of that until today at least, the residual item that has to go down is bank reserves. And when bank reserves go down, what you're effectively doing is you're asking the private sector, or actually you're asking banks in this case, to absorb more issue, more issuance of collateral of US treasuries, of duration intensive US treasuries that will be coming to the market. You're asking them to absorb more of that, Jack, having less bank reserves at disposal. Now, these bank reserves are used within the banking system to settle payments, including repos within banks. So if you're a dealer and you have effectively a shrinking amount of reserves, but you have more treasuries to actually have to accommodate, effectively you have to make space for those. So what happens is the private sector, starting from the banking system, but also then reverberating into pension funds, asset managers, etc., they are forced to reprice what is their uh, appetite for risk assets because the availability of bank reserves, which is basically money for banks, is going down while the requirement to absorb collateral risk and duration risk is going up at the same time. And so when that happens, it's generally pretty difficult for risk assets to rally because the marginal amount of capital moving towards risk assets goes down. So again, uh, uh, wrapping everything, 
looking ahead, you have forward-looking economic indicators pointing to a real economic growth slowdown, pretty sharp, I think, possibly a nominal growth slowdown on, on a pace of change basis that generally wouldn't support cyclical assets or earnings going forward. And it would, on the margin, actually pretty much support bonds, nominal bonds. So that's starting point. What about central banks? Central banks, I think, because of the design of their mandate and the fact that they're looking at the most forward-looking indicator of all, which is inflation, they will have to remain tight for longer. And as they need to remain tight for longer, they will effectively compound this tightening effect and the slowdown of the economy. As they do compound that, what happens is that the long end of the bond market can reflect weaker growth and weaker inflation going forward in 10 to 30 years from now, because the damage being done today to the economy is pretty big. So this environment, I think, remains relatively favorable for, uh, for long-end bonds. The, the fact that QT seems to be impacting or likely to be impacting bank reserves, the more actually artificial downsides, I would say, to risk assets going forward, unless they do something on the reserve repo facility on the TGA, we'll have to see that. But as I see things today... I would summarize everything by saying that if you're a long-term investor, it seems to me that over the next 6 to 12 months, being long bonds and pretty conservative on risk assets is the right stance to take. If you're a more tactical investor, I think that the cyclical rally we have had is a pretty good opportunity to scale up back into some defensive trades. For instance, we're going to just tweet something at the end of the spaces. I went long Japanese yen and short Aussie dollar and Canadian dollar. Both have, I think, held up pretty well and done pretty well in this, in this rally. But those both are uh, very cyclical uh, effects, very uh, growth-oriented effects pairs. Uh, they are commodity-oriented effects pairs, where we're seeing the first pretty decent signs of uh, commodity overhangs. On the other hand, you are, you're having, and also they both have a big real estate problem. What I mean potential problem, but big setup for a potential problem. Both Canada and in Australia, private sector debt to GDP is as high, especially in Canada, as high as it was in Japan during the 80s. Private sector debt to GDP. And when you jack up interest rates and you make borrowing condition conditions very tight, in such a leveraged uh, part of the economy, it's, it's easy to see some cracks appearing, let's say. So that compounds the thesis, I think, to be uh, short, these very cyclical effects pairs against the yen, which on the other hand, it's a pretty, um, it's a play on, in this case, slowing uh, economic growth and yield differentials closing down as euro yields come down, uh, treasury yields stop going up again. And at that point, the Bank of Japan actually, uh, their policy starts to make a bit more sense, I would say, compared to what, how much sense it made three months ago. So I really like the combination of shorting the dollar and the Canadian, uh, the Australian dollar and the Canadian dollar against the Japanese yen. And alternatively, I would just lean, um, try to lean short risk assets, make a little bit of use of the rally we have had, which has been massive, partially justified at the beginning by the reading that markets had of what Powell said, later on, much less macro justified because it turned into a gamma squeeze and both targeted funds re-leveraging on cyclical assets that has very little to do with macro. Yes, I, I think the rally... In cyclical assets, like you know, I think commodities, industrials, but yeah, I think also the the surge in let's call them high beta stocks has been quite extreme. I was just looking, you know, on um, like through the Russell 2000, and the stocks that have rallied the most over the past month um, are you know it's, it's not like, like 
copper miners are going up 100 they're not double it's it's the biotech companies it's the crypto companies uh, you know that, that a lot of that is base effects coming up from a low base um but yeah i think the 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 look the apparent liquidity, uh, the apparent risk on appetite has been more evident in financial markets than it has been in, let's say, the price of oil, which has, you know, it's 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 um, it's down. It's, it's down below uh, ninety bucks today. Um, so that that just speaks to the economic fundamentals de- deteriorating uh, in the. But despite that, lo- the liquidity still flows. And uh, I think of uh, my my good friend and uh, colleague, you know, Joseph Wang. Uh, who I frequently do episodes with on Forward Guidance, he had a, his most re- second to most recent piece is called uh, The Money Still Flows. And that's about how, you know, even though, yes, the 210 curve, the yield curve is inverted. Yes, all of these forward-looking indicators that you look at, Alf, and you know, all, all the strategists and researchers um, you know, l- look at, the, that, that's not going to impact JP Morgan's credit uh, credit card lending like credit credit card lending has exploded higher so I think going back to quantitative tightening which is I think the, the really important uh, mechanism of monetary tightening you know I think you know I work in the financial press and I think on CNBC and it's all about is it going to be 75 is it going to be 50 and, and it's, it's fun and it is it is important but I think behind the scenes the quantitative tightening that's sort of on autopilot where this Bank reserves, which you know, I found it interesting. You did refer to it as money. It is, it is a form of uh, ledger money. You know, you can't go and buy a donut with it, but that doesn't mean that it's not extremely important. That is being drained from the system, and that will be reflected in asset prices over time, of course. However, Alf, that does not mean that banks are going to stop the old-fashioned business of credit card lending of you know, uh, of lending money at variable interest rates and making old fashioned bank loans, even if yes, they're, they're going to be issuing fewer SPACs, they're going to be the high yield spreads are going to be wider, blah, blah, blah. But outside of the sort of high finance, banks can still lend like, but you know, bank lending, I, I think like, was was still high in the in the summer of, of 2008. It's, it's an extremely lagging indicator, um, perhaps almost as much so as as labor market, I, I don't know. But you know, is it possible, Alf, that just as quantitative easing couldn't force banks to lend, as we saw in Europe uh, over the past decade, quantitative tightening can't force banks to stop lending, and that it really won't be that effective of a disinflationary force if you know people are still getting mailed like five credit cards a month. That is a very fair point, uh, Jack. And banks don't lend reserves. So the amount of reserves being higher or lower has virtually no impact on bank lending. So QT is not a system to make banks lend less directly by withdrawing reserves because banks don't lend reserves. So there is no direct impact from that perspective. Uh, you're right that bank lending is a very um, coincident indicator, let's say. And it also, uh, the other thing I would like to point out is that not every type of lending is the same when it comes to uh, economic growth and and, uh, the impact on earnings and economic growth in general. So when you talk about credit cards, credit cards are not a form of lending that can spur uh, long-term capex. It can't because you need to renew and roll over your liabilities pretty short-term, right? So effectively, it's a way to, um, it's a bit like a revolver facility for a company. It can short-term boost a little bit cyclical economic activity, but if you're not able to re-leverage again over the next month or six months, then that effect will quickly fade away. Very different instead is a form of long-term loan. 
a long-term loan or, or borrowing actually on the, on the bond market, for instance, from corporates, or actually even better, fiscal deficits, because fiscal deficits create net assets for the private sector without the attached liability. That's quite a different thing. Eh? So when the government sends you a check, Jack, you don't need to pay any mortgage attached to it, right? You don't need to pay any loan. You literally just have more money on your bank account. That's a different form of credit creation than credit cards, very different, because that's long-term. It stays on your balance sheet. It had created a net asset without creating a, a corresponding liability, while a credit card is a short-term form of loan that has also created a short-term form of liability with it that you need to be able to refinance year in and year out, and most likely is not going to lead to long-term investment and capex, right? So when looking at credit, you have to really be careful, I think, in, uh, in assuming what is what. But I agree with you, definitely, that bank lending is a very coincident, actually even lagging indicator. I worked in a bank for a long time, and I mean, long time. Oh, my God. I sound very old. I worked for a bank for eight years. Uh, and the, uh, what I noticed there is that it's an extremely pro-cyclical behavior by risk management and senior management when it comes to taking risks, both an investment portfolio or on a, uh, on a bank lending book. I mean, you were basically asked to buy CLOs uh, in uh, January 2020. And you were asked to not look at anything that smells like credit risk in uh, 2016, where people thought that China would free flow the Remindy. It's extremely um, lagging and even pro-cyclical because effectively banks lend or tend to invest more in risk assets when they see that the credit worthiness behind and the fundamentals behind are good enough to justify the investment. So the first rule is not lose your principal. It's, it's not a smart way to do it, but it's the incentive schemes that are skewed that way. And that generally leads banks to be pretty late in the cycle when rates are also very high, so very high or higher, which also means that the total loan yield or the return they make on a certain riskier investment is higher because you know, risk-free real rates are higher than they were maybe earlier on. Um, and, and you know, have economic activity, which is looking good or has looked good for a while, has improved fundamentals of the borrowers, therefore I'm going to lend more. Yes, you're right on that. It is a quite uh, cyclical to pro-cyclical and lagging indicator. Mm. Yeah, and, and on the credit card point, it's kind of a bifurcated outcome where if you don't pay your credit card at the end of the month, you pay like 27% and you get charged like a late fee. But if you do pay it off, you get charged negative 1%. Or if you have like a rewards card, like negative 2%. So the fact that you know the Fed funds you know, effective rate is now at 228 basis points instead of seven basis points. To me, like that affects the credit card industry, like in, in, in a negligible fashion. Obviously, I'm sure there are intricacies that I'm not aware of. Um, but yeah, Alpha, I just also wanted to say earlier, you said that the high yield spreads in Europe, it seemed a little overdone. Well, you're in good company, Alf, uh, because I actually recently interviewed Jeffrey Sherman, uh, chief investment officer of Double Line Capital, um, and just over $100 billion, mainly in fixed income. And he said the same thing about uh, US high yield. He said it was perhaps a little bit overdone. So, uh, you know, and actually, Alf, we have, um, you know, the, the ex extremely intelligent uh, investor who's worked with you know, tons of uh, very experienced macro hedge funds, Andy Constant in the in the audience. And he, uh, based on what I've seen him recently, you know, he is he, even even he is, is becoming skeptical of this of this recent rally. So it'll be interesting to uh, to see to see what happens. Um, 
Alf, I really should mention, uh, you know, we are looking at the crystal ball now. You're looking at your crystal ball. It, it's always a probabilistic game, but sometimes you can, can sort of see where, where things are headed. Uh, we are having the, this conversation with Urian Timmer, Daniel DiMartino, Boost, and Mike Green at the BlockWorks Digital Asset Summit in September. And folks, I think there's a link uh, that has uh, been shared in the space. People should click. And the promo code uh, is MACRO200. I, th- I think they get $200 off their tickets. That's MACRO, uh, all caps. Um, uh, yeah, we see, we see uh, that the, the BlockWorks chat is, uh, is, is applauding. Um, so, Alf, how... When do you think the Fed pivot is actually no? I'm 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 asking about the dollar, Alf. So the dollar is probably like obviously I have to focus it, but but I focus on, it's like you know kind of in the middle of my list. It should be higher, but I don't follow the dollar nearly as closely as you, as as well as like you know foreign FX specialists. Why has the dollar eased over the past month and? To what degree has it been the dollar easing relative to emerging market currencies? You mentioned the Brazilian real strengthening, or is it the sort of emerging market, excuse me, developed market giants like Japan and the euro um, that have been extraordinarily weak as the Federal Reserve has tightened while they've essentially been sitting on their hands? Before I answer, I would like to say that uh, it's going to be fun, I think, in New York to sit with the other guys and... Uh, if people want to attend the conference, be my guest. Uh, we can chat pizza and bread, which probably is my best skill rather than macro. But uh, it's going to be fun, I think, to be there. Uh, first time I attend the conference, not as an investor. So I'm actually feel free to say what I want. That's cool. Um, the uh, answer to your dollar question is, well, I mean, okay, let's, let's, let's make it like this. You can split the dollar rally in two. First of all, when, when I get asked about effects, I always laugh because it's dollar against what would be my first, uh, my first answer. And uh, the DXY is basically a euro dollar proxy with some Japanese yen in there. Um, and uh, obviously, if I look at how the dollar has performed against different currencies, then I see that over the last month, it has basically you know, weakened pretty aggressively across the board. But there are two things that stand out. The first is that the weakening against the yen and the Swiss franc, pretty interesting, I would say. And the second is the weakening against uh, the Brazilian real and the Aussie dollar. So this is the two ways I'd like to split the dollar uh, softening, let's say. So the first is against the Japanese yen and the Swiss franc, which is basically uh, suggesting that the Federal Reserve is about to slow down their hiking cycle. If they do slow down their hiking cycle while macroeconomic growth is slowing down, then you have yield differentials actually uh, compressing. And as carry becomes uh, less attractive in being long dollar against the yen or the Swiss franc, which have generally speaking and historically speaking pretty low level of carry embedded in being long these currencies, then Ceteris Paribus, you get the dollar weakening against these two currencies. But those two are also safe havens. Those are currencies that you tend to buy where economic growth is slowing down. Okay, so this was effectively mostly true in the first part of the rally we have seen in equity markets that led to a weakening of the dollar. And the dollar weakened first against the, the yen and the Swiss franc. Later on, it also moved to, uh, again, weaken against a basket of emerging market uh, commodity exporters. And especially the commodity exporters, which were hit very, very bad in, uh, I think it was mostly June and July, when uh, we had a commodity drawdown. 
And so what happens again there is that that side of the of the weakening of dollar uh, Aussie dollar or dollar Brazil, it's rather a re-leveraging lower vol carry play. It's exactly the same explanations I would give before. People that have been very underallocated or stopped out in Brazilian real and in Aussie dollar, now they see a yield differential that because of you know the perceived uh, commodity story is going to remain there. For a while, they see that carry being very attractive against lower levels of implied volatility going forward because the interpretation is the Federal Reserve is going to stay relatively ease. On top of it, if economic growth apparently has to be related higher, then commodity exporters, cyclical economies like Australia and Brazil do well. So that's the second part of the rally. I would give exactly the same uh, prescription when it comes to how to interpret these rallies as I did for cyclicals in the equity space or for credit spreads. Uh, as I said before, I just added a position where I'm long the yen and short Canadian dollar and Aussie dollar. So it goes to show how much do I believe that the cyclical uh, growth uh, re-rating component of this EM effects or let's say commodity exporter effects could actually last. I don't think it could last. Alf, thank you. Uh, you've been generous with the time. I know you've got to go in you know, a, a few minutes. Uh, we'd love a question from the audience and... You know, if you folks can get their questions in now, uh, maybe Alf can answer a question or two, and then, but Alf does have to go soon. So, uh, yeah, anyone uh, would like to raise their hands, we'll be happy to call on you. And by the way, after Alf leaves, oh, here, Andy's here. Andy, could you unmute yourself, please? Thanks. Andy, you're still muted. Could you uh, press the microphone button because you're still muted? Thanks, thanks. How are you doing? Hey, Andy. All good. How are you, man? Very well, thanks. Briefly, I, uh, my brief um, comments were that um, Alf and I are actually in um, um, fairly strong agreement regarding the out outlook. Um, in particular, um, I would weight things differently, but the the general the general path is consistent with my thinking. Um, back in June, I um, I my indicators of leverage and deleveraging and the um, sustainability of high vols and low and low diversification benefit triggered such that I went very aggressively long assets um, on June twenty eighth and 9th. Um, precisely because I expected this re-leveraging flow. And to be honest, I would weight that flow higher. And I'd add one other um, comment on that. There was also at the same time a very low treasury issuance due to the very high tax receipts and very high treasury general account that resulted. And so the government didn't need to issue. And that was that the last two months we've seen a lack of issuance being um, supportive of assets. So those two combinations of things, and I would go further about vol targeting. There are formal vol targeting funds that use these inputs aggressively, but pretty much everyone on earth is a vol targeter. When you've been experiencing high portfolio volatility, your natural response to that um, is to reduce um, your footings, your your longs and shorts, and so that and and to to for for long only asset holders to reduce assets, 
And so that happened for over the first six months of the year and just got to an unsustainable level. So I would just say that I would weight that more than the other the other tailwind that I think Alf also correctly identified and is definitely the case, which is the um, which has actually kept a lid on bond prices lately and supported equities, which is a um, growth um, um, expectation surge. Um, I do think there was a growth expectation surge. I don't think it's warranted, but, um, and I also have forward-looking projections on growth that are weak, as does pretty much everyone. But I would think that that was, um, that the level of expectations today isn't necessarily at an extreme. I think what was at an extreme was the level of ex growth expectations prior to today, and it was too negative. And so I would cast the rising growth expectations as not at an extreme level, but more in line with reality. And that fuel, that, that rise in growth expectations from extreme pessimism to neutral was the way, is the way I'd characterize that tailwind. Um, the reason why I've become um, bearish um, assets, in particular stocks, is um, because of the looming um, but not yet felt storm of QT um, and the related storm of high issuance. Um, both of those things were revealed in the QRA in um, um, a couple of days, uh, weeks ago. Um, the government is going to issue a lot more bonds than was expected, and QT is going to start uh, in September. Um, at a double the pace that it had been going for this relatively calm period. And I think that's a significant headwind on assets um, and on the economy. Um, however, um, that issuance, which is partly due to the chips bill and partly due to the ironically um, 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 named Inflation Reduction Act will generate spending and issuance. The spending is the part that's concerning me because that will be inflationary. And this brief, we didn't mention the zero print last um, last week, the br this brief respite in inflation is simply not going to last. And so um, the cute issuance headwind that will be difficult for assets to recover from. And I expect Powell to make very clear what all of his lieutenants have said, that we're not done, we have a long way to go, and that'll last into the new year um, in terms of hiking. Because inflation isn't dead, um, and it needs to be killed um, true and well, well and truly dead before it... Um, before any sense of easing can take place. And so I don't think the market's prepared for that. I think the market has expects cuts in 2023 and expects a hard pivot or that a hard pivot has already occurred. And when um, Powell, um, by, by both words and deeds, um, addresses that um, in Jackson and um, subsequently in September and possibly even in the minutes on Wednesday, um, where I think there might be talk of outright sales of mortgages. I think the markets, um, this, this, this euphoria that's now, you know, we're sniffing, 
we're only we're up 600 points from the lows and great. Um, we're still 500 points from the highs. Um, so this thing can go on a little bit more of this, this, um, re-leveraging flow can go on a little bit more, but ultimately it's going to run into this reality of, of tightening financial conditions and, um, more asset sales that the private sector has to accommodate. And so for those reasons, I've become, you know, bearish on stocks. I'm actually bullish on bonds right now because I do believe that, um, term bonds will benefit. I think I'll mention this when, um, the uh, Fed um, doesn't pivot because inflation expectations and growth expectations will fall despite the headwind of risk premium expansion due to QT. So those are what where I'm at. I'm also bearish gold because I think that tightening will be very bad for gold. Um, and so that's how I sum up where I'm at at this point. Thanks, Andy. That was great. I would love to ask you tons of questions about your framework, but I, I know Alf has to go. So Alf, do you want to say a quick goodbye to the audience and then, and then head out of here? Well, I first want to thank Andy for the very elaborated and data-backed analysis. I really like what he does. And also, hey, Michael Cantro is here as well. Another great macro guy. Uh, thanks, Andy, for your thoughts. I unfortunately don't have time to attend. I need to jump to an interview. Uh, sorry, no time to uh, to reply to your comments. I would love to. Uh, I need to jump in an interview, but uh, Jack, maybe an idea for a podcast uh, to invite uh, Andy and I together to have a discussion. Although we agree this time, so there, it won't be much fun. My last um, uh, thoughts for this space is that ultimately, it depend if you're if you're a medium to long term investor, what you're looking at here is probably a, an allocation towards safer assets until there is a very strong evidence that economic growth has bottomed as in we're in the last inning of this pretty sharp slowdown in terms of real economic growth and at the same time inflation has also trend down towards the central bank target which is not all of a sudden four percent or three and a half percent it's still two percent for very good reasons uh, until you get there probably the best thing to do is to be relatively defensive i think and prefer bonds as a long-term investor to equities Generally speaking, in these environments, you have a better return from long and bonds than, than you have, especially from cyclical equities. Um, and if you're a tactical investor, then I think there are some opportunities that this very, very strong vault targeting led rally. And, and I think uh, Andy had, has a very good point there. Another evidence of, of the fact that this was a macro insensitive uh, buyers led rally is, uh, is in the skew. If you look at how many people reached out to buy uh, out of the money calls effectively to have an exposure, if not to risk assets, at least to the convexity of risk assets performing well. If you look at how much that skew actually um, moved over the last six weeks, it is pretty big in terms of adjusted um, move for uh, standard historical moves. It is another signal of the fact that people effectively reached out to relever and get back their exposure on the book that they had degrossed for the reasons that Andy explained. So when you have these things uh, and this kind of macro insensitive buyers-led rally, generally it is a good opportunity for uh, looking for trades out there and have a good risk reward from a macro perspective, also tactically speaking. I mentioned a couple of those. I'm short euro dollar. I'm long the yen against the Aussie dollar in Canada. Um, I also uh, am looking into re-entering shorts outright in equities, I think, especially on the Russell and the more cyclical kind of indices, European bank stocks and that kind of more cyclical stuff. 
we probably have seen a rally large enough to justify being short also a tactical perspective equities. I prefer expressions in FX today. I think a euro dollar, which I did at 1026, uh, probably has to go below parity again. And uh, the yen is poised, I think, to overperform more cyclical uh, commodity exporter commodities like uh, FX, like uh, Canadian dollar and Australian dollar. And this was the recap, basically, for the spaces. I would like to uh, thank, again, everybody who was kind enough to attend and listen me rambling for about an hour. Thank you. Thank you, Alf. And again, you can uh, get $200 off to our conversation at the BlockWorks Digital Asset Summit in September by using code MACRO200, all caps, M-A-C-R-O. And that is the uh, one of the few macro conversations that there. It is the Digital Asset Summit, so uh, very focused on crypto. And of course, speaking of the uh, uh, sort of rebirth of risk assets that, that we've seen over the past two months, I, I think crypto has been uh, front and center. And I, I know actually a lot of folks at the BlockWorks research team uh, who, who I've been, been in touch with uh, timed that really well. Um, so, I mean, if you are someone who is an institutional investor or you, you're running a, you know, a you know, decent sized uh, you know, personal portfolio um, and you're interested in digital assets, definitely check out the BlockWorks research product. I think you can use the code guidance, all lowercase, um, um, to get... I think 50% off, it's a, it's a pretty good deal. Um, so uh, the, you know, that's obviously a reference to my podcast, Forward Guidance, which is a reference to the central bank tool. Andy, I want to get enough of, enough of me talking about my book. I want to get back to uh, something you wrote recently, which you wrote that there is a nip of euphoria in the air, and then you also, which fascinated me, because you sort of, like almost every single successful investor in the world, hyper successful investor in the world, you, you, you lean bullish. Like, I mean, look at the S&P 500 since 1950. Like people who are bearish, who, who are structurally bearish for a very long time tend to not make money. So I, I don't want to uh, sort of, you know, saying, you're, saying you're, you're, you tend to lean bullish is by no means an insult, but you do tend to lean bullish. And the fact that you are now quite bearish saying that there's a nip of euphoria in the air is very interesting to me. And you also, let's see if I can find this tweet. Uh, you, you, you referenced one of my favorite movies, Margin Call, uh, it was filmed in. Uh, it was you know it was set in 2008. The bank, the bank, every, and the bankers knew that it was going to mortgage market was about to collapse. Mortgage-backed security CDOs, and they were. It was probably a morning. They've been working all night, and they said, "Look at these people walking on the street. They have no idea what's about to happen." Uh, where on a scale, Andy, from one to ten, with one is when you know everything's risk assets are going up, volatility is, is very low and it's falling. You want to just sort of short the VIX, own emerging market, uh, risky equities, and sort of just go to the beach and take a nap. And then 10 is you're driving and you're talking to your fellow banker and you're saying people have nowhere, people have no idea what's about to happen. Where on that scale from 1 to 10 do you think we are now? Yeah, so I would say that zero through se one through seven of those, I'd want to own a diversified portfolio of assets. That's, um, you know, bonds and stocks and, you know, a risk parity type framework, um, because that's how you make long term money. Um, and though and then so seven, eight and seven, eight, let's call it eight, nine and ten are where I would want to be short assets. And I'm a little into the eight category. I'm nowhere near 10. The reason why I put that quote up was really just to um, say I was watching the movie because I had a. Um, sent out a poll about trading places, which everyone should watch, and um, was told I had to watch Margin Call. I enjoyed it, so I quoted the movie. Um, it's not my outlook. Um, my outlook would become that outlook 
if and only if the Fed pivots. And the reason why is they aren't done fighting inflation and a Fed pivot would reignite inflation, causing long-term inflation expectations to become unanchored. The discount rate, 30-year bond yields rising significantly, and the discount rate for equities rising along with that, resulting in another tightening that's less effective because, again, one that had pivoted recently, there's going to always be an expectation of another pivot. Um, and cause you know significant long-term inflation problems in this country and around the world. And that's when I'd get to a 10 if they pivoted. But I'm around an eight because I think they're going to do their job. And so you know my outlook for equities is um, um, that we probably go where that we've seen the lows if they do in fact kill inflation, but the process of tightening will, cause a, you know, a five to 8% drop in the markets to the, you know, call it 3,800 level, um, where I think as long as they continue to fight inflation well, um, we can look forward to a year from now pivot, a pivot that's at the appropriate time, not a pivot that's um, too early. And so I would say, you know, I'm um, fully positioned for this sell-off because I do believe um, there is euphoria in the air. I do believe that the Fed will do what they're supposed to do and um, um, aggressively, through words and deeds, tighten. Um, and that that's what, and a sell-off will occur. Um, the alternative case to me, the bull case to me here, is that they landed uh, perfectly, that we've had the soft landing, that inflation is in fact dead. And now we can go to a neutral, uh, remain at a neutral policy, not really delve into restrictive policy. And that's the bull case. And you have to believe that bull case, even though um, it's a very narrow, it's incredibly complex um, inflation story right now, particularly given the high employment levels um, and high wage um, leverage. Um, it's a and and now the new wild card of of inflation reduction act spending and and um, and um, chip spending such that it's very hard to believe that that inflation is dead but maybe they killed it and if they did yeah we can see a 4500 print on the equity markets and you know being bullish expecting that a soft landing has occurred would be the appropriate response if that's what you believe. I just don't. Thanks, Andy. Yes, the inflation report that we saw last week saw month over month headline CPI, so including everything, energy, food, and everything else. Technically, it was at 0.0%. I actually think it was slightly negative. Of course, that was due to energy prices falling uh, drastically. Let's see exactly. I think energy prices fell something like... um, uh, uh, 4.6% month over month. And you can't rely on, on gasoline falling, you know, seven, 10% every single month. I mean, that's just, it's, it's extremely unlikely. So just well, because we saw that, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. The only thing I would say about that, which is, um, that is, that is in fact true that spot fell quite a bit. But if you look at, um, um, the, one year forward oil future, um, CLU three, um, you'll see that it's 
priced at 82, which is well below um, the current futures contract and indicates a almost, well, what is it? It's 89 now on, on West Texas. So that's $7 on 89. One year from now, oil is expected to have further fallen um, close to 10%, which is interesting if you think about expectations for inflation. That should be, that should keep um, a lid on inflation expectations and be a downward drag through time um, for inflation. So the question for me is um, not has spot bottomed, but is the one-year future going to represent the, the price of oil a year from now? If so, headline is going to continue to be weak. And so that speaks to a possibility that they've nailed the soft landing and then this euphoria is well justified. Yes, Andy, on all things quantitative and really all things finance, uh, I, I defer to you. I just did um, – so I think energy fell 4.6% in from June to July and or, – or sorry, from, from, from July – yeah, July to August. And unless I'm I, – I definitely could be getting my data wrong. I'm, I'm sorry. But um, – no, you're that, right. The, yeah. the the reason why headline was so low was oil fell in that month, but right. it's projected to fall and continue to fall. Is my is the only point I'm making is that um, it's still projected to fall, and every and that's what expectations are, and so it's going to have to be something else that's going to cause sticky inflation. And what I'm saying is that. There is plenty of there are plenty of things that'll cause sticky inflation, specifically, and you guys mentioned it, jobs, the number of people working, the wage they command, their balance sheet. Some people's balance sheet is, you know, we're still having tr tremendous inequality spreads that are continue to widen um, with poor, with with the lower ninety nine percent being impacted much more by inflation. But balance sheets are good, and both at the corporate level and at the personal level, and credit availability is good. And so people can spend, and that spending is the thing that, and the, and the government has just announced they're going to spend. And that spending is enough to more than overcome any continued weakness in oil if that were to happen as priced. And so I don't think inflation's dead. And for that reason, I think the Fed is going to uh, do its job and kill it finally, but it'll take some time. I hope you're right, Andy. I want to bring in Michael Kantrowitz, a, a strategist who has uh, nailed uh, the, the price action that we've seen this uh, uh, this year. Uh, he's been a frequent guest on George Noble's uh, Twitter spaces, which, which are very good. Uh, Michael, welcome to the space. Uh, how are you viewing these markets? What have you thought of the of the risk on appetite that has come to the market over the past month? Hey, how you doing? Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, let me know if, uh, if, if it's... Uh, I'm, I'm driving in a car, so let me know if uh, there's any audio issues. Um, well, that, yeah, that's very kind of you. I, I don't know if I've nailed everything, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I would say the CP. You know, I'm a macro strategist, so I'm much big. I'm much more higher level than I'd say most of the people uh, in these spaces. Just given the conversations, tend to be very short-term oriented, um, 
and, and kind of focused on technicals in the near term, which, you know, that's not my wheelhouse. I'm more in, in with uh, what ALF does. Uh, and, you know, we have uh, definitely in agreement. I am super bearish, um, most bearish I've been this year. Uh, and, and, and I'm bearish because of, you know, I joined this conversation about 15 minutes ago. So, but I'm sure everything that ALF was saying was that this is the idea that, you know, forward-looking indicators and things that lead forward-looking indicators that we haven't even seen yet. Um, in other words, things that tell you where the NHB or the Empire Fed, the Philly Fed, and the ISM are all headed, all point to at least another year's uh, worth of a decline ahead of us, which I don't, I don't think market at all is discounting or prepared for. Uh, and so I'm super bearish because of that and because of, you know, I think we're following the classic textbook of a bear market just with a lot more volatility because the bear market started with inflation uh, and was obviously, you know, the first three, four months of this year was all about higher inflation, higher rates, crushing multiples. And that's why we've seen such a sharp rebound because we had a big decline off of a big problem that is, you know, in, in investors' eyes, seemingly stabilizing. Uh, you know, and I think all they're doing is looking at oil and saying, well, that must mean inflation's coming down and everything's fine which I think is, you know, an oversimplification and uh, um, ultimately going to be wrong. Uh, and so, uh, so you know, now that we've seen this big rally two months, you know, the S&P is up about 17% from its low, which, you know, I'm hearing all these people, everyone's putting a narrative around why this is the beginning of a new bull market. And, you know, it's nothing like price to change people's views. And, you know, if you don't have a framework or if you're just following the news in the market, it's obviously going to be very confusing. And, you know, you're going to be positioned at the wrong place in the wrong time. And, you know, I feel like this, this bear market rally, like they all do, is sucking people back in. And Ralph was saying, you know, for this to continue, you need a fundamental reason. You, know, you can't just have PE expansion go on forever. Uh, and, and historically, the fundamental reason that continues a bear market rally and turns it into a new bull market is a recovery in housing which is what happened in 2019 and every other time when we got near the, uh, you know, where we had a soft landing. And so today we just cut the NHB index and that collapsed to 49. It fell. I mean, it's one of the worst data points we've seen since 07. And to me, it's just like in markets are just ignoring it. And, you know, that's your best leading indicator for the economy. Whatever the NHB is this year, next year, that'll be what GDP is. Uh, and so the NHB has been cut in half now, and, you know, uh, PMIs are obviously getting hit as well. And, you know, I think this rally is running on fumes because either we the soft landing narrative picks up and then, well, inflation stays hot, or we are heading into a recession and claims continue to rise. And then the only way rates continue to fall and oil and other commodities continue to fall because we've got a global recession that's starting. So, uh, you know, to be bullish here, I think you really have to have the market thread the needle or the economy thread the needle and get a Goldilocks backdrop, which I think is just such a low probability. When we think about probabilities of, you know, soft landing, hard landing, stagflation, Goldilocks, I'd say Goldilocks has the lowest of all of those odds. Thanks, Castro. Um, 
so, sorry, Michael. I'm, I'm used to calling you Cantro because I, I hear George Nova calling you Cantro. Um, so my question for, for, for you, Michael, and then I want to uh, get Andy's thoughts on this too, is the scenarios depend on whether the bad economic news is bad for stocks. You know, uh, bad economic news, bad for stocks, or is it good for stocks? So forget, you know, sorry, sorry. We, yeah, so we saw in 2020, even as, you know, airlines and cruise lines, cruise lines were losing hundreds of millions of dollars a quarter, billions of dollars a quarter, but their stocks were going up just because the, the Fed was supplying liquidity and, you know, things were going up. That's just the way, it's a, it was a bull market. Um, like, likewise, folks are saying, oh, oh, but Michael, the fact that we're going to have a recession, that's actually bullish because it's going to cause the Fed to pivot. So is bad news good news or is bad news bad news? So Michael, and I want to hear Andy's thoughts. Uh, Michael, we're having some connection issues. So we're having some connection issues. So, so Andy, how about, how about you take it? Michael, sorry, we're, we can't really hear you. Okay, sure. So um, it depends on the news. Um, bad inflation news is bad for markets. Um, though healthy, as it'll cause the Fed to um, um, stay, stay and kill inflation, it's bad for markets. Um, bad growth is also bad for markets. So given, I think both of them are bad for markets, um, high inflation or low growth, um, I would say, answer your um, quip, bad news is, is um, bad news. Is bad news. Michael's uh, connection uh, is not cooperating. Um, yeah, just just share my own thoughts on the matter. For, for, for bad news to be good news, in other words, for is economic slowdown to cause a Fed pivot, I think that that drastic economic slowdown has to uh, um, uh, uh, lower inflation. Um, but there, there are scenarios in which the economy slows rapidly, earn, earnings, uh, they don't grow or they actually fall, and inflation is, is not moderated. Um, you know, for example, like the, the price of oil, if you, have, if you drive to work, you're still going to have to get oil no matter you know, what the economy is doing. Um, we have we have some really hey, interesting. Hey, you know, a lot hey of, Jack, please please go ahead. Sorry, can I just say one thing about that. I think yes. it's a matter of pacing too. Um, I think the idea that bad news was good for markets because it would encourage would reduce inflation and encourage a Fed uh, earlier Fed pivot was at thirty eight thirty seven hundred thirty eight hundred. At forty three hundred, it's um, to me growth expectations are now high enough and. Fed pivot is now high enough in terms of expectations that um, you get back to the point where um, additional bad news is just bad news because it hits the um, the earnings power for stocks um, while not changing radically the inflation um, discussion or the um, or the um, or the um, pivot. Um, I just don't think that'll happen. Um, it will be quite as influential um, on bad news as it was, you know, 500 points ago. Right. Thanks, Andy. Uh, um, I've got a question. So that, Andy, that's your framework. You think the market right now is headed lower, but it's it's one thing to have a framework. Let's say you're right. Someone who has a similar framework to you, they think the market's headed lower. It's one thing to be right, but it's another to actually make money. So, for example, you know, I just pulled up this stock I, I like to track, uh, Revlon. 
it's a bankrupt company. Um, you know, it has negative equity, tons of debt that exceeds its assets. It's losing money. And I mean, it declared uh, chapter 11. Um, but it, the, the stock has rallied. Let's see. Uh, well, it's rallied 21% today. And uh, since it's low in June, which actually, by the way, it's low in June was the day before uh, the FOMC or the day before the bottom in, in June. I, that's probably a coincidence. Um, it's rallied 570%. So, you know, if you said, okay, the economy is slowing, there's super, uh, uh, you know, everything is, uh, it, it, recession is coming, I'm going to short this stock, you know, you'd be, you'd be down a lot of money. So how do you navigate that environment, Andy, in terms of like, uh, you know, entering positions and in terms of also market timing? Um, yeah. That's a good question. Um, number one, I don't play those stocks. Um, and, you know, I trade macro. And so I care about uh, major indices, which don't exhibit quite that um, degree of volatility and also have um, are liquid and can be um, are themse- the underlying assets themselves are significantly less levered to the uh, both diversified and also less levered to um, idiosyncratic news. Um, so that's the first step. And then the second step is through risk controls, um, which I outline in a number of threads on my, on my Twitter um, account. Um, but um, in terms of market timing, that's always tricky. Um, you know, you have to have a system that you like, whether it's discretionary or, um, or um, systematic that um, enters trades when your signal fires. And your signal is almost by definition never going to be uh, at a turning point. I've seen um, no evidence over my career that, that people can pick tops and bottoms with any sort of, um, any sort of skill. Um, and the ones who have were lucky. Um, even you know, great shorts like the big short were a year or two early. Um, and so, um, you know, for me, it's just about when my signals fire and the catalyst for me, um, going from, um, sort of maximum long through the summer to, um, a sizable short. Now I actually added Euro stocks today, um, was, um, the, uh, QRA where I saw a significant issuance, um, and, um, the pricing of a pivot, which I don't think is going to happen. And so, and, and, the, and lastly, the thing I had identified with as the primary driver of equity markets and risk assets in general in, in June, that has abated as well. Um, one of the major deleveragers in the last um, six months have been long only um, asset managers. And if you look at any of the um, trading and financial futures data, you can see that um, last week they um, stopped buying and started selling some of their re-leveraging. And so a variety of factors comes together with a signal and then you execute and sometimes you're early. I'm a little early so far. Um, I, sold, I, bought, um, I bought some more puts today, but I did buy puts you know, last week and the week before, and those are underwater. Mm. Thanks, Andy. And yeah, you can be extremely right, but the instrument you think is the best way to express the trade uh, may not be. So for example, you know, the uh, 
big short. And by the way, two people who uh, you, you were in the movie, in the book, and they, they worked for Steve Eisman, uh, Vincent Daniels and Porter Collins. Um, actually, it actually is the, my, my, fam- the, my, my favorite interview that I've ever done. Um, so you should check it out. I think it aired in late January, early February. Um, you know, that was a fantastic trade, obviously, uh, uh, buying credit protection on these, you know, insanely uh, risky instruments. But looking back, and there have been papers about this, like, the, you could just have shorted the banks, which they, I think they also did and a lot of other people did, or even short cyclical industries and stocks that have nothing to do with housing, but they ended up going from 100 to 3 just because the economy uh, was the way it was. Um, we uh, only have a few minutes left, um, but I'm seeing a lot of uh, uh, really interesting people um, in the chat. Uh, Michael Cow, uh, Byron, who writes the great newsletter. Blockwork. So, if, if anyone wants to uh, join uh, and ask a question, please feel free to do so. Um, Jack, can you hear yeah. me now? Or am I, yes, I can, Michael. Happen? Please take the reins. All right, I'll try to be quick. Uh, again, I'm on the highway, so I'm in and out. Um, about the point about bad, uh, bad data being bad for markets, uh, I totally agree with what Andy said. And that's what the market has set itself up for now is that PEs have all gone up on this idea that inflation's coming down. And it's bad macro data that's been lifting markets or part of it. But bad macro data is, you know, ultimately going to show up in bad company data. Oh, good news from bad earnings, you know, the way that plays out in macro. So, you know, today's print on the NHB and the Empire Fed, you know, purchasing manager indicators, uh, you know, we, we, we follow them. A lot of people follow PMIs. I also like to call them profit momentum indicators because they're, they, they lead profit growth nearly perfectly by about six to nine months. So all these bad data points or old macro data points are eventually going to show up in bad earnings. And, you know, again, that's, that's the reason I'm bearish today is because I don't see the fundamental uh, pickup that can, can sustain this rally. And not only do I not see that fundamental pickup, that fundamental catalyst, which is always housing starting to get better, today clearly got a lot worse. Uh, and so that is all going to show up eventually in coincident earnings data uh, as we get through this, uh, as we go through deeper into this downturn. And so Q3. And- yep. Michael, that's a great point about. Michael, that, that's a great point about earnings. Um, great point. Your, your connection's still a little iffy. Um, but my question, so Andy, what have you have you? We're in the we're right in the thick of earnings seasons. Uh, how would you characterize? Have there been more beats than misses? Uh, and yeah, how would you characterize the, the current earnings season? And then what is your sort of you know forward uh, uh, looking? What are you seeing? Sorry, Andy, that, that, that question was for you, and you're muted. I'm sorry. Could you repeat the question? I thought it was for Michael. Oh, uh, sure. What have you made of the earnings uh, earning season that we've seen over the past few weeks? And then you know, how, much, how, how robust do you think the transmission mechanism will be from weak economy to weak earnings? Yeah, so I'm, um, I'm, my outlook is that um, – um, real real GDP is going to continue to be weak, though stronger than it was in the first half. 
And my outlook for um, nominal for inflation is that it's going to um, bounce again. And so, nominal. So I've always been I've been sending out a lot of comments about earnings around nominal GDP being the driver, not real GDP. And I think most people missed that in um, placing very negative um, expectations on earnings. Um, so I I would say I'm uh, I think that the market has recovered a lot and earnings expectations are now more in line with what's actually in print, which still has a, about a 225 number for S&P in um, 2022 and a 235 in 2023. Um, but I think at some point this summer, probably in June, you know, the the whisper consensus was probably, you know, closer to 210, which was last year. Um, and I think that's uh, was wrong because of this very strong nominal GDP growth that we have. And equities are a nominal asset where they earn nominal dollars and make nominal profits. Um, and so I was a little more optimistic than most. And I think most now have come to where I'm at. Um, and I'm probably going in the other direction, um, um, back hey, toward where hey, they Andy, were. Andy, where are you getting that 235 for next year? What's the source on that data for earnings for 2023? Uh, Ed Yardini's uh, consensus um, number. Not his number, but the one he prints as the consensus. Okay, on that's lower than what I got on uh, IBIS on facts. I still see 244. That's a, that's a bit lower, but okay, thanks. Yeah, so just for, for context, that is essentially uh, dollars earned per share of the S&P 500. So $210 was the earnings forecast, uh, Andy, you said in mid-June, and I'm looking at- Well, no, it, what, what, what oh, I mean okay. is it wasn't the forecast. The printed forecast was has pretty much been rock solid at 225 for oh. about four months, but I think people had um, undercut that, saying it just hadn't adjusted yet, given this weakening economy. And I think what they missed is this idea of nominal, uh, nominal earnings, where real wages weren't keeping up with, um, you know, um, top lines. So um, I think we're now they, people were very pessimistic in June, and I think they had marked down that printed number from 225 to 210. And now they're coming back up to 225 again, and you know the, the market's pricing that. Right, and again, just for context for the audience, so the S and P 500 in mid June was I think a low of about 36.60. So if you divide 20 uh, 225 by that, that gives a, a PE price to earnings ratio of about 19. Uh, excuse me, I got my data's wrong. Give me one second. Uh, well, divide it uh, by it, 210. Do, okay, it was three uh, three six. 3,600 divided by 210, that was about a, a PE of 210. And now we're at 4,300 divided by 225, and we're at 19. So the price to earnings multiples have gone up, even as the earnings, the whisper earnings expectation number has gone up as well. Michael, yeah, any both, comments on that? It's, yeah, sorry. it's certainly Andy, both Andy, things happening. It's both earnings expectations going up and uh, multiples expanding um, because of this re-leveraging factor that Alf and I both mentioned. Um, so both things are happening, and I think um, both are vulnerable. Thank you, Andy. Yeah. Hey, Jack. Yeah, I, don't, I, 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 I look at I'm looking at this year, this year's earnings and next year's earnings, 
of 228 this year, next year 244, which continue to slide lower. So maybe it's a different data source. I'm pulling mine from FactSet first call. But, you know, I've seen earnings estimates come down. I haven't seen them go, go up. Yeah, so we're we're talking around each other a little bit. The printed number has been coming down. Um, it um, the or stable. The whisper number, what people actually think, and no one knows what this is. There's no data source for this. I'm only saying that I believe this is true. Was much lower three months ago, two months ago. Got it. Thank you. Great. Well, um, thank you, Andy and, and Michael Kantrowitz. Uh, if there's anyone else who has a question and would like to join, uh, I don't want to name any names, but I do see some some heavy hitters here in, in the audience who I, I would love personally, if they, if they would join and have a question, um, please feel free. But uh, we are going to wrap it up in the next five minutes. So if you do have a question, uh, raise your hand. And we'll try we'll try and get you in here. Uh, Andy, just based on your experience, you know, you uh, You've seen a lot of market cycles. You have you have a lot of knowledge. To what degree is the easy narrative that uh, we we actually? I'll, I'll ask that to you later, Andy. Hi, Roseanne. Hi Hello. there. Thank you for having me on. Love Andy and Michael. Fantastic group of people here. I appreciate that. I'm a CFO of a manufacturing company here in New York. So we experienced the data that was reported today in quarter one. There's a data delay. So we've been experiencing economic slowdown for quite some time. Margins are getting compressed. Cost push inflation is embedded. We see an increase in cost of goods sold, as well as operating expenses. We increase in cost of capital, production, labor, and also turnover expenses. There's a lot of turnover right now. People are resigning. There's unemployment going on. There's definitely a rise in unemployment in my area. A lot of small businesses have closed down. I'm getting people applying to our business who are former owners of those business, manufacturing small businesses, mostly niche businesses. Those were all cut out. The niche industries, everyone is a contracting of the belt right now. People are going for the essentials, food, energy, consumer staples, defensive, and those are the industries our manufacturing company is selling to. So we're not the earnings. I, I'm, I'm bearish. I tend to, I'm definitely long-term bearish. Short-term, I'm riding this rally. It's been great. I don't know. I think it's a relief rally. As the bear goes on, the rallies get longer and larger. And it's led by human emotion. So to me, I'm having a good time now, but I got my eye on the macro because the macro trumps all. And what we're seeing today with the uh, 40 points down with the Empire State and we're seeing the NAHB down now, another, another what, six points or something? It does not look good. New orders manufacturing last report down. Inflation, I have to say the shelter component, one third, Housing prices are not coming down. There's this general consensus that because the, there are less home sales, house prices are coming down. We're not seeing that. I'm reading in Time, just last week reported, home sales are down 14% year over year, but home prices are actually up 13%. So 
there's a lot of issues going on. There's a lot of exuberance in the market right now, but I'm not falling for it because I see it on the forefront of from our business and what we're seeing. So I just wanted to add my two cents into that, that that's where we're at. And I do think earnings and employment are the next shoe to fall. Coming into quarter three and quarter four, I don't foresee a pivot anytime this year. It has to be in 23. The inflation, even I think Bullard came out and said, they're not, or some, I don't know which one, one of them said, they, they, all of them are talking too much. But one of them came out and said, we're not going to let happen what happened in the past in 91, I think he said. We're going to come forward. We're going to be, we're going to keep cut. We're going to keep raising. We're not going to stop or, or, or what they do. They cut and then they're going to come back and raise again. They want to keep cutting. I mean, keep raising. So I think it's going to continue. They have to be proactive. Too bad they didn't start last year. Last summer would have been better if they at least started with some small increase of 50 basis points would have been better off. But now they waited and they're going to have to because inflation, the chip bill and the inflation incre increasing bill. Oh, wait, it's the inflation reduction bill. I don't know why it's called that, but it's a lot of spending and the issuance of bonds exactly as Andy said. I am very concerned. And quantum tightening is in September. We're going to see more of it really beginning. So, you know, there's a lot of things going on and it's going to take time. It's going to take time for these. In, in, they're, they're just all inequities. They're all misaligned. Just like the workers coming to our business. Most of them are overqualified. They're applying for, for jobs they shouldn't even be applying for because their businesses went under. And, you know, there's going to be, uh, it's going to take time to work through this. I'm thinking in the next probably six to 12 months, and we're going to see the market definitely retrace. It has to, it can't diverge this much from the macro and things are not improving as we see all the data. Energy is the main reason the CPI went down. If energy does creep up or it stabilizes or even goes down a little more, we still have elevated shelter. Food is still elevated. And now there's more spending with these two bills. So, you know, I, I, I'm definitely long-term. Uh, I added puts into the indices for next year, January 23. And I'm scaling into them, dollar cost averaging into them. And uh, that's my, my plan. I do have, uh, I am long anyways, my equities, but I'm definitely bearish in that six to 12 month period. Thank you. Thank you for that, Roseanne. Um, yeah, so I, I definitely don't, you, your, your experience and what you're seeing on the ground is, is very compelling. And I do agree with your macro framework, which is a, it's Andy's framework, which is Michael's framework, which is, you know, we all sort of agree, but you said it just can't go higher. I don't know, but I, there, it, it can always go higher. You, you sort of, you never know, but uh, I, I do think you're probably right. Um, uh, Roseanne, do you have a question for, for, for Andy? Um, and then uh, we should probably get going. Um, sure. Uh, I would love to ask. Andy, so I see you said you're bearish on equities and eight on a one to 10 scale. Um, are you still net long some of your positions? Are you um, short the indices, any specific one or all of them? Um, how, how are you positioning for the next six to 12 months? So no, I don't trade individual equities, don't invest in inv individual equities. I run um, an alpha portfolio um, exclusively. My long-term savings are in um, a diversified portfolio of um, bond stocks, golds, and so on, um, and index equities. So I don't really play individual names. I used to when I was um, you know, starting out in my career, 17 years at Solomon. 
grading equities, but that's not my thing. And um, right now, all I do is um, this alpha portfolio, and the alpha portfolio is short. Um, NASDAQ, I, put, I bought 2% of the AUM um, in NASDAQ puts. I bought 2% of my AUM in um, S&P puts. And today, uh, I was early on those so far. Um, and today, I bought 1% AUM in um, Euro stocks 50 puts. So if I'm wrong, I'll lose 5% on my money. And if I'm right, um, I use put spreads, so that creates a minimum, a lower cost and a um, maximum return. But if I'm right, I'll make thirty percent. Hey Andy, your your bearish view is more about growth slowing, or is it rates staying high or going higher, or is it both? Um, I am um, bearish on, on, on nominal growth because I think the Fed will kill inflation and also simultaneously kill real growth, and that'll be bad for earnings. Um, and I am bearish on what I call risk premium because I believe the Fed will tighten monetary policy, which hurts all assets from gold to bonds to stocks um, through um, um Basically, the multiple when you think about stocks. Because why? Why? Why would you be short? Why are you shorting the Nasdaq and the S and P, which is you know basically large cap growth? When your narrative's more about it sounds like coming a, a coming earnings and economic slowdown. Why not be short more more indices like the Euro stocks index or or mid caps in the U S. or small caps in the U S. Yeah. You know, those are those are fine and all. Um, I um, I trade back and really focus on the you know the most liquid indices. So um, there's no good answer to that except that's what I do. And so um, someone who has a more refined view of you know to, could take my view and make indicators that are that deal with some of the idiosyncratic risk of all those other things you mentioned. Um, are uh, would potentially have a better way of expressing the trade than I do. Yeah, uh, one thing Alf said is that the, the cyclicals have rallied, and um, that that is is accurate. But I, I think there has been a drawdown in commodity stocks, particularly non-oil and gas commodity stocks, like, I don't know, Freeport Macmoran, which, you know, they have, they mine a lot of copper, okay, and they mine some gold, too. Um, that's, you know, roughly, uh, you know, it's, it, let's see, it's, it's, it's well off its highs. Um, so I, I don't think the sort of reflation optimism is at its zenith. And I think, you know, I mean, that's down 40% from its highs. Um, and so, we we have seen some some, some repricing re repricing there. Um, uh, Cantro, uh, uh, actually, sorry, Roseanne made some interesting points about housing. Uh, Andy, do you have any any views on on that? And then and then we really should be going. Um, on on housing, I would say that um, my um, catalyst for a leg down in housing will be the minutes and whether the, the um, outright sale of mortgages by the Fed. Um, was being contemplated, and thus they are prepared to announce an actual sale of outright sale of mortgages um, in September at the September meeting. Um, if they ignored that conversation, that means that mortgages will basically only run off, which they're not, 
um, through the the fall into possibly as late as December before they're prepared to make an outright um, sale of mortgages. The outright sale of mortgages would generate, whenever it happens, the outright sale of mortgages would generate a sell-off in housing. Yes, I've been uh, speaking to Chris Whalen, who knows uh, a lot about the, the plumbing of mortgage-backed securities, and he said that the types of mortgage-backed securities that were bought by the Fed in March, April, May of 2020 were, as could be expected, very low coupon securities. You know, Ginnie Mae twos, so they pay two percent a year on the uh, the par value of 100 par. And since then, mortgage rates have risen, as have Treasury risk-free rates. So. Uh, and that, and that, as such, it is extremely hard. The the, the market for it, the, the folks who are trading, who are in the desk, who you know, and it used to be one of them working at Solomon Brothers, people who at Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, who are trading, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars of mortgage-backed securities every single day. They are not trading Ginnie Mae twos. They are trading Fannie Mae fives, Ginnie Mae sixes, and sevens. You know, so. Uh, the, effectively, if the Fed Reserve were to, instead of l- rolling off in terms of like just let them expire, if they were to actually sell those mortgage-backed securities, uh, it would be Armageddon. I think that's the word that Chris used uh, on my call with him. Um, does that does that sound about right, Andy? Um, I, um, I don't know um, about that. Um, certainly, those are not the on-the-run the on-the-run mortgages, and there'd be some. Um, on the run, um, there'd be impact on the on the runs as people made room in their book for this um, illiquid off the run stuff. And there'd be a discount paid in the market for uh, both on the run and off the run if somebody tries to push out off the run stuff. Um, so yeah, it's it's going to be messy. Um, and the, the, the point is true that, um, but the Fed has many Fed members in particular um, have been very focused on the mortgage balance sheet. And it, you know, is about a third of the existing balance sheet. And the goal of through the end of QT is to have that balance sheet have no mortgages. So something has to be done. It's just a matter of time. And that pain that you described has to come. It's just a matter of when. Mm. Very interesting. Andy, Michael, Roseanne, thank you so much for being a part of this space. Uh, again, I'm going to be having a talk with Alf and Daniel DiMantrino Booth, Urian Timmer, and Mike Green at the BlockWorks Digital Asset Summit uh, in New York City on September 13th and 14th. And there's tons of digital asset talks there that are it's going to be fascinating. Uh, you uh, And you can get $200 off by using the code MACRO200. That's macro all caps. Um, and guys, uh, everyone, thank you so much. Uh, everyone listening, I really appreciate you um, uh, joining us for today. Hopefully, uh, you, you found it valuable. I, I don't, I did. Uh, thanks and have a good day. 